You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max, and uh, this is the last in our week-long series of conversations with this year's Polk Award winners. Uh, I love these interviews. It's fun to do something different and to go really deep on one story. And for this fifth and final episode, I talked to Bernice Yearn and Michael Graybell. They're two reporters at ProPublica, and they won the Polk Award for health reporting for a series of investigations they did into the meatpacking industry and how the meatpacking industry handled COVID-19. Michael's been reporting on the meatpacking industry for years, but over the course of 2020, the two of them teamed up and did a whole series of different kinds of pieces, really trying to take stock of the impact that COVID outbreaks in the meatpacking industry had had across the country. At one point in July of 2020, 8% of all infections in the United States could be traced to meatpacking plants. It's just staggering. So they did this work all year, but this conversation, we focused on a piece they put out at the end of the year in December about one plant in Waterloo, Iowa, which was the site of the nation's largest known workplace outbreak of any kind. Uh, And the piece that they did is just, it's incredible. It's really sort of two stories in one. The story of this outbreak, which were basically lots of people in the town, including the mayor and the sheriff, were pushing Tyson and pushing the governor of Iowa to do something about what was happening at the plant and and nothing happened. So they're telling that story, but then also the entire history of meatpacking in Waterloo, which has a really long uh, and checkered checkered past. So so that's really what we focused on. And uh, I very much appreciate them coming on the show and, and all of the people who have talked to us this week for this Polk Award series. Thanks to the Polk Awards. And uh, here's the conversation. Michael, Bernice, uh, I'm so happy that I'm getting the chance to talk to you and congrats on the award. You know, you did this um, just incredible reporting throughout 2020 on the meatpacking industry. And Michael, I know you've you've been covering it for a long time. Uh, but I'm hoping that today we can focus on uh, this one piece that you published in the end of the year, December 2020, about the Tyson meatpacking plant in Waterloo, Iowa, uh, which had the nation's largest known workplace outbreak of COVID-19. 
there's so many things I want to ask you about the story, but I guess to start, can you tell me a little bit about Waterloo, about the town itself? So Waterloo has sort of this great history where the entire arc of the meatpacking uh, industry, the history of the meatpacking industry has played out in Waterloo over the course of 100 years. So when COVID hit, we've been doing a lot of reporting uh, about what was going on in the meatpacking plants uh, using public records requests and things like that. And we really wanted to settle in on one place. And there are, of course, meatpacking plants all over the Midwest, all over the Southeast. And what drew us to Waterloo at first was the names of the people who had died from COVID who had worked at that plant. There was a Bosnian woman. There was a Mexican father of six. There was a Congolese pastor. There were many people who had gotten sick from the, who were refugees from Burma. Uh, so it was a very diverse population in seeing that. Uh, and then as we read more and more, we learned a lot about Waterloo's history and how um, it had been one of the earliest places in the Great Migration uh, with Black families moving up from the South. And it had played an important role through a previous meatpacking plant called the Rath Packing Company, where there was a large portion of black families that had moved there to work at the Rath Packing Plant and not only got jobs there, but had also built a pretty strong union that became very active in fighting for civil rights. Um, and through the course of Waterloo's history, ended up going bankrupt and, and closing. And a new plant came in that would become Tyson that followed this sort of modern version of a meatpacking plant and, and was spearheading a lot of the changes in the industry that led to a place where immigrants from all over the world uh, were working side by side in the tight conditions without the voice that meatpacking workers had years before. You know, the other aspect of uh, what Michael's describing that was so fascinating for both of us was just how Waterloo also reflected this rise and fall of meatpacking worker power. Uh, you know, they were at one point a very strong union and Waterloo's union in particular was this kind of mighty multiracial uh, union that was able to, you know, order work stoppages at this drop of a handkerchief. I mean, they were able to make various demands related to their workplace and their salaries. And um, I think what was really interesting to see that in juxtaposition with um, kind of the conditions and the wages and, and the kind of sense of uh, hopelessness or helplessness that, that some workers felt um, in the here and now during the pandemic. Right. And at the, at the height of that union's power, when it was with the Rath packing plant, I mean, workers were making twice what people currently make at Tyson, right? It wasn't quite, it was twice what the current per capita income is in Waterloo, but they were making 24 to $32 an hour uh, in today's dollars back in the 1960s. And Tyson workers now, I believe, make about, starting wages about 17. And so part of what drew you to the story was that history, because you could imagine had a global pandemic set in when that union was strong, that maybe it would have gone differently than it did this time. I did uh, speak to a, a few kind of historians of that uh, era, of that kind of height of meatpacking union power uh, in Waterloo and in the Midwest. And that was some of the speculation that they had. They, they had lots of questions about whether, you know, if the pandemic had taken place when there was just more sense of a of agency among the workers, whether there would have been an ability to demand much sooner 
you know, hazard pay uh, that was more suitable or more time off that was paid, uh, clear communication from the management about what the expectations were, being able to make demands related to personal protective equipment, just all of those concerns that workers had, maybe those would have been more at the forefront if there had been more of a just ability to, to kind of um, engage with management. There is a union currently at that Waterloo plant. But what we, you know, discovered in talking to some of the union leadership there is that they felt they, they were not pushing in the same way that we saw the Rath union push back in the day. Part of the reason I imagine you guys were so eager to tell this story is that through July 2020, 8% of all of the COVID cases in the States were traced in one way or another to the meatpacking industry. I mean, it's a huge, staggering, staggering amount of cases traced to this. So I can understand why it was a story you wanted to tell. But once you settled on Waterloo, like how do you go about actually reporting that out? You've got these incredibly diverse communities. Many of them don't speak English. I think you guys are on separate coasts, if I'm not mistaken. How do you do that? How do you how do you find that story in Waterloo, Iowa? Lots of phone calls, <laughs> hundreds of phone calls, actually. I think Michael and I have a shared spreadsheet. I don't know how many entries there are at this point. Several hundred. Yeah. With different tabs of categories of people that we're calling. And I think one of the, like, we had many visions for this story, I think. And we pursued almost all of them. I mean, some of the different ideas, uh, we, we focus a lot on the sheriff in the story, but I mean, we spent a long time thinking that there might be, you know, because there's there's such a big tie between the plant, the city, and the African-American community, that there might be someone who could tell that entire story of having a great grandparent uh, come up as a strike breaker for the railroad, and then their grandfather worked for the meatpacking plant, and then finally now they work at Tyson and somebody in their family got sick and died as a result and what that would mean for them. So we spent a long time kind of pursuing that. And we pursued, you know, we're looking at the mayors, the first black mayor uh, in the city uh, standing up to the biggest employer. And in some cases, the industry that helped put Waterloo on the map. So it was a lot of phone calls and each community had their own cultural fears of how they were taking the virus, mm -hmm. of how they interacted with their employer, and also their willingness to speak to journalists. It was many different things to navigate and to sort of learn about, to understand how to approach each community. Yeah. How do you do that? I mean, like just functionally, how do you report this story from your houses in a pandemic? How do you, how do, you do it? Some of the names were already public. One of the challenges, you know, initially, I think we jumped in and said, okay, we're going to call there's there was a lawsuit and we'll call the attorney and he'll help us find people but he didn't want his client stalking i mean I think it was just a lot of calling around everybody knew somebody who had gotten sick um i found a couple who's uh, kareni which is one of the ethnic minorities in burma and i found them through uh you know reaching out to some of the local churches i'm trying to think bernice how did we find other people well especially when we were thinking that maybe um you know finding someone who had that full through line through their personal family history to the Rath packing plant. We actually relied a lot on oral histories that had been done in the area. Several academic institutions ended up doing oral histories of meatpacking in the Midwest and Iowa in particular. And so we were literally going back and, and finding people's names and then trying to find their next of kin, you know, through public records or old newspaper articles um, and calling them up and, and talking to them to find out, you know, whether they kind of um, fit the profile. There was uh, looking at 
obits. Um, so Michael had found one 85-year-old Burmese refugee who had passed away. Um, and, you know, I, uh, we found the granddaughter through public records, you know, spoke to her. Her whole family works at Tyson. She does not at the moment. So it was just a lot of, um, you know, looking at what was out there and then kind of digging in that next layer deeper. What were those conversations like? I mean, you're talking to people in the aftermath of someone they love dying, still in the chaos of this pandemic, and you're from a publication maybe they've never heard of, and you're talking to them over the phone. Like, how? What are the texture of those conversations like? How do you, how do you approach them? Well, for that one Karenny granddaughter that I'm thinking of, you know, she really wanted to honor her grandfather. And so this was a way for her to really share. One really poignant moment was she was talking about how, because of the pandemic, the community was not able to come together in the way that she would have hoped and would have anticipated under normal circumstances. You know, there would have been hundreds of people coming to pay tribute and to share in their grief, and there was no one. And so I think as unusual as it may have been, you know, to get a phone call from an absolute stranger, I think perhaps part of it was that she just needed and wanted to talk about it a little bit. You know, there were, there's the brother of a Tyson worker who also was open to talking. And I think because he was both saddened and outraged by what was happening. So he was really motivated to share his experiences as horrible as they had been, because Again, he felt that um, it was important that people knew what had happened to his brother. Uh, he felt that Tyson had something to do with it, and he wanted the world to know that. I mean, part of what that story underscores is how easily these stories could have gone untold and unreported. And I, I wonder, you know, you were saying at the beginning of this that you, you were looking at meatpacking plants all over the country. Is part of the experience of, of going this deep on one plant, on one town, is part of the experience that it makes you think about all the other versions of this story that didn't get told? Well, you know, I'll, I'll first start by saying that I think what attracted us to this story, um, you know, because we had this built on a series of stories based on public records and, you know, looking at how this was playing out in, in different contexts and different um, locales. But they were stories that looked at a lot of policy. Of course, the meatpacking workers were, their voices were included as much as possible. But we really felt like what we were seeing, not only across the country with all the various other media accounts, was that because things were moving so fast, these were stories about statistics and, and the sheer numbers um, and policy failure, all very important things. But what was kind of getting lost was the human impact, you know, on the families, on the workers themselves, on their communities. And so, um, you know, our, our editors in particular really encouraged us to think about doing a story that went deep and looked at how all of this unfolded for not just individuals, but for an entire community. And that's, um, you know, kind of the, the hat that we had on when we were approaching the reporting. And how, how do you do that remotely? I mean, did you guys take any trips or did you do this all from the comfort of your own homes we uh so we went to waterloo and we went for about a total of two weeks in which we overlapped for a day 
Um, so I went first. Um, and and the, the reason we structured it that way was if we found somebody, but they, you know, said, I can't talk to you until next week, then somebody would be there. We wouldn't have that sort of, oh, but I'm gone this week. And it, it turned out to be even more challenging than we imagined. Uh, the mayor got COVID uh, right before our interview and had to cancel. Hmm. Uh, several key people that we wanted to interview in person or that we thought might be characters uh, got sick from COVID or had a quarantine because they were exposed. So that became real challenging. But, you know, even in a pandemic, like nothing beats being there in person with somebody. You can't do this kind of reporting. You can't get these kind of stories and this that kind of level of emotional connection from phone or, or, or even from a Zoom call. So that was kind of a critical but difficult part of the reporting. Were you fearful yourselves? Um, so we went when we, at the start, when we planned the trip, things were looking okay, but this was the period of November when things started going up. So it turned out we were actually there at one of the worst times for Waterloo. I think, I, I don't know what the rate was, but it was much higher than it had been even during the peak with meatpacking. And so in retrospect, yes. Um, though, you know, it's, it's interesting to see because when you step out in, into the world, you realize that people are going on with their, their lives and they're going to coffee shops and they're taking off the mask to eat and life in America is going on even if we're spending most of it in our apartments. You know, I, I love getting out on the road and being in the field is, for me, the best part of reporting. Uh, this was the first time I can think of where I had apprehension about going on a trip. You know, I just... It, it did not feel entirely comfortable in the no way that it normally does. At the same time, I agree completely with Michael that, that it was just absolutely necessary um, in terms of doing the story right. And I'm, I'm glad we did it. Um, it's just those serendipitous moments where you're talking to somebody and they call up, you know, their uncle-in-law who used to work at the raft packing plant back in the day and was a union steward. You know, it's just those types of chain reactions that you just can't get on the phone. I mean, Michael, yeah, you know, had this incredible interview uh, with uh, a former Tyson worker who now worked at a nursing home. You you should tell the story about how you found her. I mean, it was just incredible. Yeah, this was, I so I had the hardest community to find people to talk in was surprising the Bosnian American community. They had been in Waterloo for about twenty five years and had come over as refugees after the Bosnian War in the mid nineties, uh, and a lot of them had been drawn to work at Tyson, which back then was called IBP, because they had gone and recruited there. So I called business owners, I called community leaders, I called the imam from the local mosque, and had very a lot of trouble making inroads in the community. And I found out that they were building a new Bosnian Islamic center on the outskirts of town. So I just sort of drove over there one day, thinking like, uh, they're just going to tell me to leave or they're not here. And some guys who were doing construction pointed me to a shed where they were actually having a meeting of the association at that very moment. So I walked over there and interrupted and somebody came out and spoke with me. And the guy told me that actually his wife was one of the, you know, the director of nursing at one of the main nursing homes that had been affected by the virus. Um, and it turns out she had also worked for Tyson mm -hmm. when she first got there. So she had a very different, you know, a very interesting, different perspective there. And I would, that would have never happened if I was doing this by phone. It, it was funny, Anna Mae Weems, who's this sort of big civil rights leader in Waterloo, well-known, 
it took me forever to get her to talk about the history of Waterloo and her story. And partly it was because she didn't think I was serious. Uh, and then when I said, I'm coming to town, she changed that. Okay, so, so, you know, let me sit down. And I'll talk to you about this now. Um, so through several interviews like that, because I was coming, she was willing to tell me that story. And for you guys, it was worth the risk? Thankfully, I did not get COVID. Right. <laughs> it's easy to say that <laughs> now. Yeah. But I mean, I think also we took appropriate precautions. I think what was for me in terms of a, a, a reporting lesson was how almost subconsciously um, as you know, where you're constantly trying to make your interview subject feel comfortable enough to share information with you. And so you're making accommodations all the time without even thinking about it. Um, and in this scenario, you know, I felt like I just had to manage the environment and manage the interview and set boundaries in a way that was different, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, not uh, problematic, just different and perhaps it will be useful down the line too. Yeah. Thinking about where people were sitting, you know, we obviously did our interviews with masks on, but when you have masks on, you can't see the person's reaction or expression. So a lot, you have to think about what your eyes are doing, you know, and how to express emotion with your eyes, which is very different. Mm -hmm. A story like this being told under these conditions where you're just absorbing sort of the first time for many people that they're trying to process what happened, this amount of illness and death, which just absolutely ravaged this community like having those conversations over and over and over again does that take a toll on you personally it's a good question i guess my initial reaction is that um i'm perhaps the type of reporter uh, for better or for worse i'm pretty good at compartmentalizing information um i mean i think about the job that we do which is looking at depressing stuff day in and day out and if you know you didn't have some ability to do that you really wouldn't be able to do the job. So there's some aspect of that where you're you're filing it away. You're you know, you're trying to be present in the moment and then you have to kind of lock it up because otherwise it does get to be too much. But then, you know, there are just the moments where, you know, despite all of that, the, the weight of it just hits you. And sometimes for me it's very unexpectedly, you know. It's of course just incredibly difficult. To be talking to somebody who has lost a loved one and is feeling that pain so vividly and deeply in front of you, you know, and then you, you're, you're holding some of that. But that's what I think informs the, the reporting and the writing. And that's what always motivates me to do these stories is, you know, to, to kind of just reflect that, reflect that human experience, even if it's painful. Michael, what about you? I'm the same way. I don't think I'm as good as compartmentalizing. I'll definitely... Uh, I definitely tear up uh, in interviews. And I think at the end, like at the end of the day, you want that, that experience to come out in the writing. Um, and I think for me, all of that I've taken in, you know, I, 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 because this is more of a narrative feature piece, this is not kind of, um, you know, we're trying to tell the story as it happened to allow that sort of emotion from the interview that, you know, the, from the person's interview, from the person's perspective to come into the story, you know, I'll always sort of go back and listen to recordings again and again as I'm writing so that it puts me back in that moment and I can kind of convey it in a way that it was happening and not the way that I remember it mm. to be happening. And for me, that is a little bit of a cathartic experience to be, to sort of write it out onto the page and, and do, and it's sort of an active way of doing something with it. That makes sense to me. And it 
comes through in the piece. La- last question, and then I'll let you guys go. Um, we haven't talked very much about Tyson in this interview, and I know that both of you have reported on labor for a long time. Michael, I know you've written about the meatpacking industry before. Did reporting this story change your ideas or conceptions of how power works in any way? Did it change the way you think about this thing that you've been covering? It accentuated that power dynamic that uh, I've come across in different ways. Um, You know, Tyson, uh, one of the first stories on Tyson was how they had written and influenced many of the workers' comp laws in the country, especially in states that they're in. So I knew that power dynamic existed. But to see it play out in a community and to see it play out in a pandemic where you know, we, we discovered that the meatpacking industry had written a draft of, of President Trump's executive order that allowed the plants to stay open. Really, I mean, it, it was not surprising, but it accentuated how well this exists and how it plays out in a community where, you know, people have to work, people have to survive. I think for me, um, it, was, it was the same. It, it put a finer point on a dynamic that I'd seen before where workers don't always feel like they have the agency and the choice to seek the kinds of working conditions that they would like to make them feel safe. And I think for this particular story, it was brought into even starker relief because of what we had learned about the history. You know, that at one point there was more equal footing between the workers and the company. Um, and, And through this story, we were able to also trace back and trace forward how so much of that power for the workers had been eroded. And so it just helped me put into context, historical context and policy context, why this was happening. Right. And on some level, the story that Tyson was telling was, this is a chaotic time. We're doing our best. And the reality is there's decades of history that preceded it that directly led to what happened. It's always amazing what you can learn from history. (laughs) And (laughs) how how often we repeat it. How often we repeat it, right? (laughs) That's right. Well, Bernice, Michael, thank you uh, so much for doing this work and congratulations on the Polk Award. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Long Form. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor for this whole series from the Polk Awards was Courtney Harrell. Courtney, thank you. Thanks very much to everyone at the Polk Awards, uh, John Darton in particular, for making this thing happen. And uh, we should do it again, I think. But for next week, we'll be back with a regular episode on Wednesday. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. 
Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Support for this show comes from Vanta. Dealing with loads of spreadsheets, juggling different tools, and having to do manual security checks, it can be a headache to keep up with today's compliance and security programs. Vanta is the trust management platform that wants to simplify things and bring all your trust-building efforts under one roof, making growth smoother for your whole organization. Vanta lets you automate up to 90% of compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Strengthen security posture and reduce third-party risk. Get $1,000 off Vanta when you go to vanta.com slash vox. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash vox for $1,000 off Vanta.